beer, no women, no pool parlors, nothing. Nothing to do but throw rocks at tin cans, and we got to bring our own tin cans. Attention, Captain the crew, now hear this. We are now entering the atmosphere of Altair IV. No survival suits will be required upon landing. Oxygen content, 4.7 richer than Earth standard. Gravity, only 0.897. Adjust your equipment accordingly, that is all. I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the Futus of War. Resistance is futile. Straight flows from the force, but beware of the dark side. Oh. Oh. Iron Man, that's kind of catchy. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's a gold titanium alloy. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is a reach call. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you're listening to Treks in Sci-Fi. This is episode 635 for Sunday, May 14th, 2017. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today's movie is one of the greatest science fiction movies of all time. It's Forbidden Planet. Starring Walter Pidgeon, Anne Francis, and Leslie Nielsen. I know some of you longtime Treks and sci-fi listeners are saying to yourself, didn't Rico already cover this movie? The answer would be yes. Rico covered this movie on episode 344 in November of 2011. Forbidden Planet is one of my favorite science fiction movies, and I wanted to take the time to share this movie with all of you. Before I get into this week's podcast... I want to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to tune in today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to Forbidden Planet. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information, and then we'll get into the movie. this faster-than-light spaceship of the future, sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. Sir, we're being radar scanned. 
United Planets Cruiser C-57D, J.J. Adams commanding. Who are you? Morbius of the Bellerophon. Well, Dr. Morbius, my orders are to survey the situation on Altair IV. Commander, if you sat down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. When you reach the Forbidden Planet, you will meet Dr. Morbius, played by Walter Pigeon. The doctor is sole owner of this fabulous world. Anne Francis is his alluring daughter, Alta, who has never seen a young man till she meets Commander Adams, played by talented Leslie Nielsen. Not in. Didn't bring my bathing suit. What's a bathing suit? Oh, murder. You will meet a charming character in The Robot, able to produce, on order, ten tons of lead or a slinky evening gown. Always at your service. It must be the loveliest, softest thing you've ever made for me. And fit in all the right places, with lots and lots of star sapphires. Star sapphires take a week to crystallize properly. Would diamond or emeralds do? You explore all the wonders of a vanished civilization. You travel deep down into the heart of the forbidden planet to discover the incredible marvels of this lost genius race. These magnificent scenes in striking Eastman color stagger the imagination. 20 miles. Look down, gentlemen, are you afraid? 7,800 levels. Yet the wonders of the planet Altair IV conceal a strange and evil force, unknown, irresistible. Forbidden Planet is an American science fiction movie directed by Fred M. Wilcox and produced by Nicholas Nafak. The story was written by Irving Block and Alan Alder. The screenplay was written by Cyril Hume. Forbidden Planet was released May 15, 1956 and has a running time of 98 minutes. And here's the cast starting at the top. Walter Pidgeon as Dr. Edward Morbius. I remember him from Mrs. Miniver. It's a World War II movie. Really good movie. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, next up is Anne Francis. She's Altera Morbius. I only remember her from this movie. I, my father told me that she had a TV show in the 60s called Honey West, and she was a private detective. Uh, next up is Leslie Nielsen. He played Commander John J. Adams. Um... I remember watching Leslie Neal, Nielsen. He was always a guest star on like McLeod or McMillan and Wife and 
Columbo back in the 70s. But I really remember him from his later career because he was a comedic actor and he did the uh, the airplane movie. He was the pilot. And then he did the Naked Gun series and he did a bunch of comedies after that. So I think it, think of him as a comedic actor where for a long time he was a serious actor. Uh, next up is Warren Stevens and he was Lieutenant Doc Astro. Astro. And he did a lot of TV work in the 60s and 70s. Um, next up is Jack Kelly. He was Lieutenant Farman. I remember him from the Maverick TV show. I think he was Brett Maverick's cousin or something like that. Uh, next up is Earl Holloman. He was Cookie the Cook on the ship. And I remember him because he was uh, Angie Dickinson's boss in the 1970s police drama Policewoman. So that's where I know him from. And then last but not least is Robbie the Robot. And he was in The Invisible Boy. It was a late 1950s science fiction show. And I think he was in an episode of The Twilight Zone or something like that. But uh, that's all I have for movie information. So let's get into the movie. The movie starts with a really good narration from the great Les Tremaine. He's got a great voice. And as some of you people know who have listened to me talk about this for years is he looks like Johnny Quest's father to me. If Johnny Quest's father was a real person, he would look like Les Trebane. But that's another story. So now let's get into the movie. Today's movie starts in the 23rd century. United Planets space cruiser C-57D is en route to the distant planet Altair IV. Commander John J. Adams and his crew have been sent to Altair IV to determine the fate of the Bellerophon expedition sent 20 years earlier. Captain to crew, attention. Our destination, Altair IV, is now visible on the main view plate. As you'll recollect from your briefing lectures, this is an Earth-type planet. 20 years ago, the spacecraft Bellerophon landed here with a prospecting party of scientists. Our mission is to search for survivors. That is all. While in orbit of Altair IV, they make contact with Dr. Edward Morbius, who is one of the scientists from the Bellerophon expedition. Dr. Morbius tries to persuade Commander Adams and his crew not to land, saying that he couldn't guarantee their safety. Sir, we're being radar scanned. Zero on it? No, sir, but it seems to emanate from an area of about 20 miles square. 20 miles square? Yes, sir. Bosun, flash the alert. Aye, aye, sir. Combat stations, blast them in. Activate your scopes. Radio contact, sir. There's a voice here. Human? Yes, sir. Sounds like it. Boosted. Spaceship, identify yourself. You're being tracked. Cut me in. United Planets Cruiser C-57D, J.J. Adams commanding. Who are you? Morbius of the Bellerophon. Who? Edward Morbius. Yeah, here it is. Morbius E, Ph.D. Lit D Expedition Philologist. Philologist? What do you wish here, cruiser? Well, you, you don't understand, sir. We're your relief. We're very glad to find you alive. I, of course, appreciate your concern, but absolutely no assistance of any sort is required. Well, the red carpet treatment, huh? Uh, Dr. Morbius, my orders are to survey the situation on Altair IV. Let me repeat. I'm in no sort of difficulty here. 
Your best procedure will be to turn back at once without landing. Sorry, sir. Commander, if you set down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. Dr. Morbius gives Commander Adams the landing coordinates and he lands a spaceship on the surface of Altair IV. Soon after landing, Commander Adams, Lieutenant Farman, and Lieutenant Doc Ostro are met by Robbie the Robot. Robbie transports the three men to Dr. Morbius's residence. Welcome to Altair IV, gentlemen. I am to transport you to the residence. If you do not speak English, I am at your disposal with 187 other languages along with their various dialects and sub-tongues. Colloquial English will do fine, thank you. Uh, this is uh, no offense, but you are a robot, aren't you? That is correct, sir. For your convenience, I am monitored to respond to the name Robbie. Nice climate you have here. High oxygen content. I rarely use it myself, sir. It promotes rust. Hey, Doc, is it a, is it a male or a female? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Will you get in, gentlemen? The three men are met at the residence by Dr. Morbius. He invites them in for lunch. Dr. Morbius is the sole survivor of the Bellerophon expedition. He tells Commander Adams and his men the story of how one by one the rest of the expedition was killed by an unknown planetary force. Well, gentlemen, this has been very pleasant. You've seen how comfortable I am here. No hardships, no special difficulties, and... Uh... No need at all for uh, military assistance. Now I dare say you're impatient to get back to base. Yes, sir. The moment we've interviewed the other members of the Bellarophon party. Others. But there are no others, Commander. Before the first year was out, they had all, every man and woman of them, succumbed to a, to a sort of a planetary force here. Some dark, terrible, incomprehensible force. Only my wife and I were immune. And just how do you account for your immunity, Dr. Marvius? My wife and I differed from the others only in our special love for this new world, in our uh, uh, boundless longing to make a home here far from the scurry and strife of humankind. I remember how when the boat was taken to return to Earth, she and I were utterly heartbroken. How could we have foreseen the extinction of so many co-workers and friends? Skipper... There is no record of any wife on the Bellerophon rolls. Oh, Lieutenant, look under biochemistry. Julia Marson. She and I were married by the skipper on the voyage here. I have the certificate. I thought Robbie had managed some very charming feminine touches. I take it Mrs. Morbius isn't at home today. My dear wife died a few months after the others. Only in her case, it was of natural causes. I'm very sorry. Dr. Morbius, just what were the symptoms of all those other deaths? The unnatural ones, I mean. The symptoms were striking, Commander. One by one, in spite of every safeguard, my co-workers were torn literally limb from limb. By what? By some devilish thing that never once showed itself. And the Bellerophon? Vaporized as the three remaining survivors tried to take her off. And yet, in all these 19 years... You personally have never again been bothered by this planetary force. 
only in nightmares of those times. And yet, always in my mind, I seem to feel the creature is lurking somewhere close at hand, sly and irresistible, and only waiting to be reinvoked for murder. Dr. Morbius offers to help Commander Adams and his crew prepare for the return journey back to Earth. Commander Adams says he must wait for further instructions. This is when Dr. Morbius' daughter, Altera, shows up. Alta. Alta, I specifically asked you not to join us for lunch. But, Father, lunch is over. I'm sure you never said a word about not coming in for coffee. Well, did you or did you? Uh, this is uh, Commander Adams, Dr. Ostro, and uh, Lieutenant uh, Farmer, my daughter. How do you do? We so terribly wanted to meet a young man, and now three of them at once. That's very kind of you. You're lovely, Doctor. <laughs> of course, the two end ones are unbelievable. Could this end one get you some coffee? Oh, I'm quite able to get it. Thank you. Thank you. Of course, you, uh... Must make allowances for my daughter, gentlemen. She's uh, never known any human being except her father. I hope you'll make allowances too, sir. We young men have been shut up in hyperspace for well over a year now. And right from here, the view looks just like heaven. Sugar? But you keep helping me. After all, you're not Robbie. <laughs> well, I wouldn't mind being Robbie in certain ways. Uh, that's only in certain ways, of course. See, that was probably very clever, but I don't seem to understand it. Well, there's, uh, there's no rush. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I suppose one day I shall be obliged to make the trip to Earth with her for the sake of her natural development. I should say fairly soon, too. Commander Adams, Lieutenant Farman, and Doc Ostro return to the ship. Commander Adam instructs Chief Quinn to construct a radio capable of reaching Earth. Chief Quinn tears apart half the ship's electronics to build this radio. The next day, Commander Adams catches Lieutenant Farman kissing Altera. Lieutenant Farman, don't say a word, sir. I, uh, I know there are a lot of pressing duties waiting for me back at the ship, and, and rank doth have its little privileges, mm, sir. And you can depend on it, Lieutenant, that those privileges won't be stretched to taking your kind of advantages. Oh, What's the matter with him? Why did he leave? Why did you both act so funny? Well, what'd you expect? Well, don't you understand, Alta? No. Well, look at yourself. You see, you can't run around like that in front of men, particularly not a space wolf like Farmer. So for Pete's sake, go home and put on something that'll... Anything. What's wrong with my clothes? I designed them myself. Stop looking at me that way. I don't think I like it. Uh, uh. What do you mean, ha, <laughs> ha? Commander, the lieutenant and I were just trying to get a little healthy stimulation from hugging and kissing, that's all. Oh, that's all. It's so easy for you, isn't it? There's no uh, feelings, no emotions. You, uh... Nothing human would ever enter your mind. 
Well, it so happens that I'm in command of 18 competitively selected super-perfect physical specimens with an average age of 24.6 who have been locked up in hyperspace for 378 days. It would have served you right if I hadn't... And, and he... Oh, go on, get out of here before I ever run out of the area under guard. And then I'll put more guards in the guards. Later that evening... An invisible invader sneaks aboard the spaceship and sabotages the radio Chief Quinn is working on. Wrong and gray, last night during your watch, this ship was entered, and valuable government property was sabotaged. Now, the two of you claim to have been at your posts and awake. Yet this ship was entered, the heavy-duty hatch was raised and latched back, and neither of you saw or heard anything. Except you, Gray, you heard breathing. And, Youngerford, let me see, you were asleep in your bunk. And you think you had a dream. A dream. Pending further evidence, you're deprived of space pay and all privileges. Well, me too, sir? No, me too, sir. We'll stand 20 extra watches. I'll have less dreaming aboard this ship. Dismissed. The following morning... Commander Adams and Doc Ostro return to the Morbius residence. Dr. Morbius is in his study and not to be disturbed. Commander Adams steps outside to talk to Altera. Morning! Morning. Come on in. Didn't bring my bathing suit. What's a bathing suit? Oh, murder. Now, Alta, listen. You Come mustn't... Al, Al... You just wait right there. It'll take me a second to get dry. Yes, well, I'll... Uh... I'll just turn my back here. Well, that's the way you feel about it. Well, don't worry. You're not going to have to look at me anymore from now on. Hmm? You'll see. See what? You'll see what. Now wait, now, wait a minute, Alan. Now, if you're planning on, uh, uh... No, I sure didn't expect to see you today after the way you spoke to me yesterday. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm very sorry about the way I spoke to you yesterday, Alan. I, I sort of bothered. Oh. All right. You can look now. Especially for you. Oh, I thought you weren't expecting me today. Wasn't. I don't know. I guess just something about me personally you don't like. Alta, you always look just beautiful. Then why don't you kiss me like everybody else does? Everybody? Hasn't your father taught you anything at all? Well, he says I'm terribly ignorant, but I have had uh, poetry and mathematics, logic, physics, geology, and biology. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. Well, so far. Huh? What's wrong with theory? Commander Adams and Doc Ostro decide to go inside Dr. Morbius's study, only to find that he is not there. 
Then suddenly, Dr. Morbius appears from a secret doorway and catches the two men reading papers on his desk. The two men find out that Dr. Morbius has been studying a race of beings called the Krell. The Krell were a highly advanced race that perished overnight 200,000 years ago. You'll find the household silver in the dining room and my daughter's jewelry on her dressing table. Dr. Morbius, last night our Klystron monitor was sabotaged. And you suspect me. Then the time has come for clarification. Sit down. In times long past, this planet was the home of a mighty and noble race of beings, which called themselves the Krell. Ethically, as well as technologically, they were a million years ahead of humankind. For in unlocking the mysteries of nature, they had conquered even their baser selves. And when in the course of eons they had abolished sickness and insanity and crime and all injustice, they turned, still with high benevolence, outward toward space. Long before the dawn of man's history, they had walked our Earth and brought back many biological specimens. I see. That explains the tiger and the deer. The heights they had reached. But then, seemingly on the threshold of some supreme accomplishment, which was to have crowned their entire history, this all but divine race perished in a single night. In the 2,000 centuries since that unexplained catastrophe, even their cloud-piercing towers of, of glass and porcelain and adamantine steel have crumbled back into the soil of Altair IV, and nothing, absolutely nothing, remains above ground. What were they like? No record of their physical nature has survived, except perhaps in the form of this uh, characteristic arch. I suggest you consider it in comparison to one of our functionally designed human doorways. Dr. Morbius takes Commander Adams and Doc Ostro to see one of the Krell laboratories, where he shows them the plastic educator. This is just uh, one of their laboratories. You'll notice that much of the equipment is familiar, though designed for non-human technicians. What's this? On this screen may be projected the total scientific knowledge of the Krell from its primitive beginning to the day of its annihilation, a sheer bulk surpassing many million earthly libraries. You're able to read this? A little, it's my profession. 20 years ago, I began here with uh, this page of geometrical theorems. Eventually, I was able to deduce most of their huge logical alphabet. I began to learn. The first practical result was that uh, robot of mine, which you gentlemen appear to find so remarkable. Child's play. I've come here every day now for two decades, painfully picking up a few of the least difficult fragments of their knowledge. A thing like this, it's... it's too big to evaluate. Think what a discovery uh, of this kind Dr. Uh, what is this device over here? I call it their uh, plastic educator. As far as I can make out, they used it to uh, condition and test their young in much the same way as we once employed finger painting among our kindergarten children. I often play with it myself for relaxation. Although working here, I sometimes wish I'd been blessed with multiple arms and legs. 
Now, you can see that this headset was designed for something much bulkier than my human cranium. Now, over here you see the electromagnetic waves of my brain sending that indicator up about halfway. I uh, gather that one of their own young, comparable to a seven-year-old child, was normally expected to send that all the way to the top, which by Krell standards classifies me as a low-grade moron. Yet I have an officially recorded IQ of 183. Now then for the uh, primary function. Actually, to uh, operate, well, I'll choose a familiar subject to start with to save time. Simply a three-dimensional image, Commander. But it's alive. Because my daughter is alive in my brain from microsecond to microsecond while I manipulate. There. Something of a strain. Aladdin's lamp in a physics laboratory. Would you gentlemen care to take the Krell test of your intelligence? Yes, very much. You may be disappointed, Commander. Suppose we start with a good doctor. What do I do? Just sit down there, and I'll move a little forward. That's it. There now. Now, Doctor, you can read it here. Well, there's something wrong here. I have an IQ of 161, yet I don't register a third what you did. Mm. Now the commander. Sir. A commanding officer doesn't need brains. Just a good loud voice, huh? How do I make an image, sir? Just pull the switch Don't stop. You'd never survive. Our Bellerophon skipper tried it, and it was instantly fatal to him. Oh, I see. So you're immune to this, too. In my first attempt at creating an image here, my brain pattern there was scarcely any larger than yours. Afterwards, I lay unconscious for a day and a night. And yet you came back for a second go at it. It was a question of science, Doctor. But you can imagine my joy when I discovered that the shock had permanently, permanently doubled my intellectual capacity. Otherwise, my researches here would have come to nothing, poor as they have been. Recently, I have turned up some rather puzzling indications that in those final days before their annihilation, the Krell had been applying their entire racial energies to a new project, one which they actually seemed to hope might somehow free them once and for all from any dependence on physical instrumentalities. Civilization without instrumentalities? Incredible. Dr. Morbius, everything here is new. Not a sign of age or wear on any of it. Young man, these devices, self-serviced, self-maintained, have stood exactly as you see them for 2,000 centuries. 2,000?
thousand centuries. And during all this time, what was the power source? That's a very good question. May I uh, draw your attention to uh, these gauges all around here, gentlemen? Their calibrations appear to indicate that they are set in decimal series, each division recording exactly 10 times as many amperes as the one preceding it. 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 times 10, on and on and on, row after row, gauge after gauge. But there is no direct wiring that I can discover. However, when I activate this machine, it registers infinitesimally, you see, down there in the lower left-hand corner. And then, uh, when I activate the uh, educator here, it registers a little more. But this much is negligible. The total potential here must be nothing less than astronomical. Nothing less. The number 10 raised almost literally to the power of infinity. Gentlemen, would you care to see some more of the uh, Krell wonders? Indeed, yes. yes. If you will, step in the shuttle car. Then Dr. Morbius takes Commander Adams and Doc Ostro on a tour of the Krell underground machine complex. 20 miles. 20 miles. Listen. Circuits opening and closing, and they never rest. This is one of their ventilator shafts. You can feel the warm air rising. Look down here. Look down, gentlemen. Are you afraid? centuries it has waited patiently here, tuning and lubricating itself, replacing worn parts. I have reason to believe that 16 years ago a minor alteration was performed throughout the entire 8,000 cubic miles of its own fabric. But what's it all for? Uh, sometimes the gauges register a little when the buck deer fight in the autumn or when the birds fly over in the spring. And nearly a whole dial became active when your ship first approached from deep space. I'll show you a section of one of the power units. These units are sunk in the body of the planet, 50 miles right below our feet. Now, be sure and look only in the mirror. Man does not behold the face of the Gorgon and live. Power of an exploding planetary system. 
After the tour of the Corelled Underground Complex, Commander Adams demands that Dr. Morbius turn over his discoveries to Earth. Dr. Morbius refuses, claiming that humanity is not ready to receive such limitless power. Meanwhile, back at the ship, the invisible intruder returns and kills Chief Quinn. Morbius, a scientific find of this magnitude has got to be taken under United Planet supervision. No one man can be allowed to monopolize it. For the past two hours, I've been expecting you to make exactly that asinine statement. Just one moment, Commander. For close on 20 years now, I've been constantly, and I hope dispassionately, considering this very problem. And I have come to the unalterable conclusion that man is unfit as yet to receive such knowledge, such almost limitless power. Whereas Morbius, with his artificially expanded intellect, is now ideally suited to administer this power for the whole human race. Precisely, Doctor. Such portions, then, of the Krell science as I may from time to time deem suitable and safe I shall dispense to earth. Other portions I shall withhold. And in this, I shall be answerable exclusively to my own conscience and judgment. Dr. Morbius, in the absence of special instructions, you leave me in a very awkward position. Commander. Commander Adams. Speaking, Lieutenant. Skipper, the chief's been murdered. Quinn murdered? Yes, he was alone, working on the monitor. The rest of us were all outside on guard duty. I... How was it done? Done? Skipper, his body is plastered all over the communications room. All right, leave everything as it is. We're on our way. Doc Ostro makes a plaster cast of the footprint left by the invisible invader and brings it to Commander Adams. Is that it? I tried to make a plaster model from the footprints we found. Thirty-seven inches by nineteen. Doc, I don't understand. Whatever walks on this would be quite an opponent for a man with a club, but without kind of weapons, Quinn could have knocked no, this No, no, Skipper. This thing runs counter to every known law of adaptive evolution. What do you mean? Well, notice this structure here. Characteristic of a four-footed animal. Yet our visitor last night left the tracks of a biped. Primarily a ground animal, too. Yet this claw could only belong to an arboreal creature like some impossible tree sloth. Just doesn't fit into normal nature. Anywhere in the galaxy, this is a nightmare. The next day at Quinn's burial, Dr. Morbius warns Commander Adams that he had a premonition of further deadly attacks similar to what happened to the Bellerophon expedition. The next night, the invisible creature returns and it kills Lieutenant Farman and two other crewmen. Meanwhile, back at the Krell Laboratory, Morbius is awakened from his sleep by screams from Altera. At the same time, the roaring creature disappears. What is it, Randall? Sir, radar just picked up something. Where are we? At the head of the Arroyo. Moving? This way, sir, slowly. Automatic control. Sir. Good. 
me audio com. Aye, aye, sir. Now, attention. This may have been a rooster divert us from some other part of the perimeter. You men will continue watching on your own immediate fronts. That is all. What? It just stopped at the foot of the pass. Are you sure you've got a real blip there? Big as a house, sir. And we were dead on target with both bursts. It's coming on again. Straight across? It shows here. It's still coming! Great. Strong, set up a crossfire on those rocks. Later that night, Commander Adams and Doc Ostro go to the Morbius resident. While Commander Adams tried to persuade Altera to leave, Doc Ostro sneaks away and uses the Krell educator. With his dying breath, Doc Ostro explains to Commander Adams that the underground machine was built to materialize anything that the Krell could imagine. He says the Krell forgot one thing, monsters from the id. You took the brain boost, huh? You ought to see my new mind. Up there in lights, bigger than his now. Come on, easy, Doc. Morbius was too close to the problem. The Krell had completed their project. Big machine, no instrumentalities, true creation. Come on, Doc, let's have it. But the Krell forgot one thing. Yes, what? Monsters, John. Monsters from the id. The id? What's that? Doc, Doc. Power-o-matic. The fool, the meddling idiot. As though his ape's brain could contain the secrets of the Krell. Father, he's dead. He was warned, and now he's paid. Let him be buried with the other victims of human greed and folly. Morbius, you wanted me to make a choice. Now you've chosen for me. Alter. I'm ready to go with you, darling. Altera, go. I will place him in the tractor, sir. Thank you. She mustn't do this. She must be prevented. Morbius, what is the id? Young man, my daughter is planning a very foolish action, and she'll be terribly punished. What is the it? It, 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 it. It's a... It's an obsolete term. I'm afraid one choose to describe the... elementary basis of the subconscious mind. Monsters from the id. Huh? Monsters from the subconscious. Of course, that's what Doc meant. Morbius. A big machine, 8,000 cubic miles of Kleister relays, enough power for a whole population of creative geniuses, operated by remote control. 
Morbius, operated by the electromagnetic impulses of individual Krell brains. To what purpose? In return, that ultimate machine would instantaneously project solid matter to any point on the planet, in any shape or color they might imagine. For any purpose, Morbius. Creation by mere thought. Why haven't I seen this all along? But like you, the Krell forgot one deadly danger. Their own subconscious hate and lust for destruction. The beast. The mindless primitive. Even the Krell must have evolved from that beginning. And so those mindless beasts of the subconscious had access to a machine that could never be shut down. The secret devil of every soul on the planet all set free at once to loot and maim. And take revenge, Morbius, and kill. My poor Krell. Commander Adams tells Dr. Morbius that his subconscious mind created the creature that killed the members of the original expedition and attacked his crew. But Morbius refuses to believe the accusation. Still refuse to face the truth. What truth? Morbius, that thing out there. It's you. You're insane. How else would you have landed here where Alta must see you torn to pieces? You still think she's immune? She's joined herself to me, body and soul. Yes, and whatever comes forever. Say it's a lie. Shout, let it hear you out there. Tell it you don't love this man. Not even if I could. Stop it, Robbie. Don't let it in. Kill it, Robbie. <laughs> No use. He knows it's your other self. jumble that combination. Whatever you know and hear, your twin self out in the tunnel knows too. I'm not a monster, you! We're all part monsters in our subconscious. So we have laws and religion. Let me go! You've got to listen. We don't have much time. Here. Here's where your mind was artificially enlarged. Consciously, it still lacked the power to operate the great machine. But your subconscious had been made strong enough. I won't hear you. You've got to listen. Twenty years ago, when your comrades voted to return to Earth, you sent your secret id out to murder them. Not quite realizing it, of course. Except maybe in your dreams. What man can remember his own dream? At least when our ship was approaching from space, you remembered enough to warn us off. But then, when you thought we were threatening your little egomaniac empire, your subconscious sent its id monster out again. More deaths, Morbius. More murder. And now this, too, harm my own daughter. But now she's defying you, Morbius. And even in you, the loving father, there still exists the mindless primitive. More enraged and more inflamed with each new frustration. So now you're whistling up your monster again to punish her for her disloyalty and disobedience. And if you don't do something about it soon, Morbius, it's going to be coming right through that door. 
solid Krell metal, 26 inches thick. Look at your gauges. Look. That machine is going to supply your monster with whatever amount of power it requires to reach us. The creature melts through the almost indestructible Krell metal doors of the laboratory where Commander Adams, Altera, and Dr. Morbius have taken refuge. Dr. Morbius finally accepts the truth. He confronts and disowns the creature, but is fatally injured. Before Dr. Morbius dies, he has Commander Adams unknowingly initiate a chain reaction within the Krell reactors, saying they must be in deep space within 24 hours. 98,000,000.6. We're clear now. What an astrogator. A genuine privilege, Commander. Activate main view plate. Aye, aye, Skipper. That's Alta 4, the bright speck below the star. Fifteen seconds. Yes, Alta, your father, my shipmates, all the stored knowledge of the Krell. Five seconds, four, three, two, one. from now, the human race will have crawled up to where the Krell stood in their great moment of triumph and tragedy. Your father's name will shine again, like a beacon in the galaxy. It's true, it will remind us that we are, after all, not God. And that's the end of the movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. Forbidden Planet was loosely based on The Tempest by William Shakespeare. Forbidden Planet was the first science fiction movie to depict humans traveling in a faster-than-light starship of their own creation. Forbidden Planet was also the first to be set entirely on another planet in interstellar space far away from Earth. Robbie the Robot is one of the first movie robots that was more than just a mechanical tin can on legs. Robbie displays a distinct personality and is an integral supporting character in the movie. Forbidden Planet was groundbreaking as the first of any genre to use an entirely electronic musical score, courtesy of B.B. and Louis Barron. Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry has been quoted as saying that Forbidden Planet was a major inspiration for that series. The spaceship C-57D models and full-size props were reused in seven episodes of The Twilight Zone. It was featured in one of my favorite episodes, To Serve Man. This was Leslie Nielsen's film debut. Forbidden Planet was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects in 1957. In 2013, Forbidden Planet was entered into the Library of Congress's National Film Registry, being deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And that's all I have for movie trivia. Now it's time for the Star Trek Connection. Everyone who knows me knows I'm a big Star Trek fan. 
and I try to find a Star Trek connection in every movie or TV show I watch. There are two Star Trek connections in today's movie. The first Star Trek connection is Warren Stevens. He played Lieutenant Doc Ostro in today's movie. In the second season episode of the original series, by any other name, he played the character of Rojan. The second Star Trek connection comes at the beginning of the movie. As the C-57D enters orbit above Altair IV, Lieutenant Farman states that the time is 1701, which is the Enterprise's ship registry number. And that's all I have for the Star Trek connection. Here are my comments about this movie. I watched the 1999 DVD release from Warner Brothers Home Video. The only bonus feature on this DVD is the theatrical trailer. That's it. The picture and sound quality are pretty good. First of all, I, I gotta let you know up front, this is one of my favorite science fiction movies of all time. I remember watching this movie as a kid, and I was thinking to myself, this movie would be a really good episode of Star Trek. It's got all the ingredients. You got the big three. You got your Captain Kirk character, you got your first officer character, and you got the ship's doctor character. You've got a murder mystery, you've got an unknown creature, and the captain gets the girl at the end. Sounds like an episode of Star Trek to me. Anyway, let's get back to the movie. The storyline, is, like I said earlier, it was loosely based on Shakespeare's The Tempest, which is a good story. So it's got a good story. But I really like the Krell storyline about an advanced race of aliens that they create this machine that will create anything that they think of. But they didn't think that their subconscious would also be empowered by this machine and, and kills the whole race in it overnight. That's a really good story. Um, the actors, everybody did a great job. Um, Walter Pigeon was great as Morbius. Um, it's funny to see Leslie Nielsen play a, a romantic lead and a straight guy after watching him being being a comedic actor for years and years. It's just a trip. Um, the special effects loved all the special effects in the movie. The matte paintings, the props, the costumes, the car. Uh, Robbie, the plastic educator. Great movie. Um, the music score was excellent by B.B. and Louis Barron. Love electronic music. Um, my favorite character in the movie is Robbie. And I've got a couple clips here that I want to play that uh, Robbie and Cookie interact, and it's really, really funny. They are the comic relief for the movie. So here's the first clip. Can I be of service, sir? Look, never mind the sir, mister, but I'm a stranger in this so-called planet. I was just wondering if, well, if you could tell me where I could, uh, I could get a hold of some of the real stuff. Real stuff? But just for cooking purposes, you understand. I take a big pride in my duties. Pardon me, sir. Stuff? Oh. Just about one jolt left. Oh, genuine ancient rocket bourbon. See here? Well, you low-living contraption, I ought to take a can opener to you. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Yes, relatively simple alcohol molecules with traces of fusel oil. Would 60 gallons be sufficient? Gallons? 
Mister, I've been from here to there in this galaxy, and I just want you to know you're, you're the most understanding soul I ever met up with. Ow! 480 pints, as you requested. Total, 60 gallons. Genuine Kansas City bourbon. <laughs> you're smooth, too. Robbie, I ain't never gonna forget this. Anytime you're hard up for a couple of gallons of lubog, you just let me know. There was a remake that they were gonna they were talking about doing about ten years ago by um it was gonna be directed by Michael J. Straczynski, I think that's his name. He's the creator of Babylon Five, and what I understood stood at the time was he wanted to do a three part like a mini series of movies. And the first part, the first third would be the journey to Altair four. The second part would be what we know as forbidden planet. And then the last third would be the journey to earth. And I guess it never, never worked out, but if they do remake this movie, please do a good job. Don't, don't do another, the day the earth stood still with Keanu Reeves. That sucked. Um, I would recommend this movie to all science fiction fans. If you haven't seen this movie, you need to watch this movie. It's a must. Um, on a scale from 1 to 10, this is a 10 out of 10. This is one of my favorite movies. I could watch this movie any day. And those are my comments about this movie. That's it for today's podcast. Uh, there will be no podcast next week. But Rico will return the following week with a vidcast from the Motor City Comic Con. I'll be back soon with another classic science fiction movie. Until then, everyone take care. This is M5 signing off.